Well, uh, I, I'm really excited for this morning. This morning's actually uh, the last week of this series. I hope you enjoyed it. It's been a, a sermon series where instead of me doing the preaching, um, we've had certain individuals from our church just come up and, and share their story of what God has done in their life. Because the reality is, we all have different stories. Uh, probably all of us have a story where there's pain, there's heartache, there's maybe tragedy, there's joy, there's excitement, there's hardship, there's perseverance. We all have a story of, of so many different things um, But we all have, or hopefully we all have a story of God interceding, of God showing up, of God doing something in our lives that we really, really needed. And so this has just been a sermon series about about you guys and how God has shown up in your life. And I think that this is going to be a yearly thing for us where we do this sermon series every single year. I think it's neat because we get to know one another deeply. That is one of our heartbeats of this church, that we would be a community that knows one another, that loves one another. Um, And so maybe it's you who shares your story a a year from now or so. So today I'm really excited, uh, kind of a a Mother's Day story of sorts. Um, April Bennett's going to come and share. And so um, as she does, why don't you come up here and if I can pray over you and and then you can share your wonderful story. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for... April's story, um, would you, Holy Spirit, speak through her, and would you speak to our hearts, and, and Lord, we know that this is a day where we want to honor mothers and, and be a blessing and encouragement to mothers, but may this story also be an honor and an encouragement to um, us men in the room, too. Um, I think we need to hear this just as much as anyone. Uh, speak to our hearts, and we pray all these things in your precious name, Amen. Did I get that turned on right? Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm April. Zach told me this week that I was finishing out this sermon series, and since Mother's Day has the third highest attendance of the year, I was not to blow it. Uh, I appreciate the faith he has in me, but I am the mother of four kids, ages five, three, one, and one month, so time to prepare was a little hard to come by, so we'll see how this goes. Um, As each person started sharing their story over the last few weeks, they said, you know, Zach emailed me, and then I asked my spouse to pray, and I prayed, and then I finally said yes. And I'm just going to confess, Zach emailed me, and I wrote back and said yes. Uh, I didn't ask anybody to pray, and I thought as I sat here, I had just failed the first test of speaking at church. (laughs) And I didn't pray about it, but actually I have. I prayed about it for a really long time that God would give me the opportunity to share my story and the struggles that it involved um, for several years. So here I am. And it's Mother's Day of all day to share my story. Just a couple of warnings. One, like I said, I have a one-month-old. My emotions are really kind of close to the surface right now. So, um, and then two, this isn't necessarily your typical Happy Mother's Day tale. And I've learned over the past several years of talking to other people, um, other moms, other women, that Mother's Day isn't always as happy as Hallmark wants us to believe. Um, this, for some of us, this can actually be a really, really hard day. In my case, it was the path to motherhood itself that would lead me through some of the darkest days of my life, where I would journey right through the valley of the shadow of death 
and cling to the Lord when I couldn't see the path in front of me. I learned a lot about myself and the nature of God as I walked. But long before I was thinking seriously about motherhood, God had already started me on a journey that would challenge me and build up my faith, which looking back, I can see I needed those years to get through the years that would come. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, all I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. We can actually church that quote up quite a bit um, with Hebrews 11.1, which says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. God uses experiences in our lives to build up our faith and trust in him. So I'll start with the journey of faith. This journey starts to start with the mountains in Spokane, where I grew up, went to elementary, middle school, high school, and college. At Eastern Washington University, I studied economics as a social science, which is different than a business economics degree, and that different is really code for not nearly as useful. <laughs> My dad, being very wise, questioned what I would actually do with this degree. And I said, well, I'll go to graduate school, of course, and then I'll probably teach. During my senior year of college, I was offered a full-ride scholarship to WSU's graduate school in economics. But at the same time, I took a class on leadership where we had to write about where we wanted to be in 10 years. As I wrote that paper, I could see myself living and working in Washington, D.C., a city that I had loved since I was 14 years old and there on a family vacation. I had also loved local politics for years. I would interned with a congressman and I wanted to experience life inside the Beltway. Writing that paper made me realize I didn't want to wait 10 years and a graduate degree to live that life. With God's help and faith, I realized there was a little voice in my heart saying, I didn't really want to finish graduate school. I wanted to go get a job in Washington, DC. That took a lot of faith to put into words because it was kind of crazy for a girl with a full-ride scholarship to WSU to say, I'm going to go look for a job on the other side of the country where I don't really know anybody. But it wasn't just crazy. I had faith on my side that God was in this plan. So I prayed about what to do and came back with the idea that I shouldn't wait until I had a job offer. I should just move there. And that's what I did. Um, I should add that here that my parents moved to Florida during this time, so I actually my backup plan was to just land on their doorstep. <laughs> so I packed up my car, my cat, and a whole lot of courage and set out on a very long cross-country drive. Well, God was faithful. Like, as I was driving through Indiana, my phone rang on a Thursday afternoon. It was someone from the United States Census Bureau calling to set up a phone interview for Monday. I said, actually, I can be there in person. What's the address? I was hired two weeks later. It was a crazy plan, far from the comfort and safety of home, but it was where God asked me to go, and my faith grew, watching his plan to give me my desires unfold. As I left Spokane in school behind, though, I promised myself and a few professors that I would only work for three years, and then for sure I would go to graduate school. Living just inside the Beltway, I poured myself into my job, which I loved. It was a lot of numbers, a surprising amount of travel, and I was on the track to be a manager. But wait, I was supposed to go back to school, and I had told everyone three years was my limit here. At year two, I started to work on my plan to go back to school, but I wasn't really all that excited about it. 
Work was fun. Work paid money. Um, but I felt again that push from God that said, go, do this new uncomfortable thing and see what happens. Well, this time I had scholarships to choose from, so I picked the one closest to my mom and dad and started graduate school at the University of Florida. I was back on track to that graduate degree I had wanted. Just one small problem. I absolutely hated graduate school. It was awful. I was sure I was on, in the very, very wrong place. Surely I must have misheard God because my life had pretty much taken what I thought was a very, very wrong turn. So I left graduate school after just one semester. I made plans to return to Virginia, try a different school, a different degree, and if that didn't work, I was sure my job at the Census Bureau would still be waiting for me. I knew my job would be waiting because it actually could kind of stay with me through this whole time. When I left the Census Bureau, there was some work that needed to be done that they were willing to contract out, and I was hired as a contractor. I was able to work part-time while I was in graduate school. This was a huge provision from God when school didn't work out. I still had something to do. And over the next several years, as I would continue to do contract work for the government, it would support my family, put my husband through college, and allow me to even have an employee for a few years. But sometimes life isn't a struggle, and sometimes things fall into place pretty quickly. Uh, sometimes you pray and have a desire, and things happen faster than you can even imagine. Sometimes faster than your parents even think is very wise. <laughs> Um, and that's how I met my husband. <laughs> the University of Florida is pretty much in a small college town in the middle of a swamp. If you aren't in school and involved in the school, there's not much to do. And I wasn't in school. I was just waiting for my lease to be up so I could leave. Seemed like a pretty good time to try online dating. <laughs> in January of 2008, I saw the profile of a very good-looking pilot. And as I would find out as we emailed talked and met over the coming weeks. He was also a man of God. He was funny. He was nice. He was super smart. And it took me only a few weeks to tell my parents that this was the man I was going to marry. We started out dating with a long-distance relationship of 200 miles between the city that I lived in and the one that he lived in. We drove a lot on the weekends. One very late night, I was driving the two hours home, and a panther ran out in front of my car. Big, dark cats in the middle of the big, dark night were scared as about anybody, uh, and I swerved, and I rolled my car multiple times. I must have had a lot of angels following me that night because I was able to crawl out of the car mostly unharmed. It seemed, though, that this was a sign that long distance wasn't going to be a good idea. We knew God was the center of our relationship, and we were meant to be married, and so to keep everyone alive, after dating just for three months, we were married under a live oak tree outside of the county clerk's office. That's a really fancy way to say we eloped. <laughs> God had very quickly answered my prayers for a husband and was showing me why I had felt that tug to leave Washington, D.C. the year before. It wasn't for school. It was to be within a 200-mile search radius of the man he had picked out for me. It was certainly a showing of following in faith to the things not yet seen. Quite frankly, at the time when I left D.C., it was the things I hadn't even thought of. God is just that good. Well, we still had a wedding on the beach with family and friends, uh, but since we had already done the official part, my dad actually was able to officiate our wedding ceremony. 
It was nine years ago last week that Mark and I stood on a sunny beach and vowed again to love each other through all times. We knew we wanted to have children right away, four of them, actually. Mark was 32, I was 25, and we were ready to jump right into starting our family. I had some idea that getting pregnant might not be super easy for me since I was diagnosed with endometriosis at age 19. So when a few months went by, we were already checking in with the doctor. For the next couple years, we would pursue infertility treatments that were progressively more aggressive. At first, it was take some oral medication at certain times of the month, then we moved on to doing nightly shots. Mark worked out this great system where he would get the shots ready, hand me a cookie, and then give me the shot. He said it was a great way to distract me, <laughs> and it worked. All the treatments came with invasive testing uh, every few days, sometimes every day. So we have lived two hours from our infertility clinic, and I would make the four-hour-plus trip multiple times a week. I also had to have surgery twice to remove endometriosis and ovarian cysts. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome during this time. It was taking a whole team of doctors, a lot of money, and so much patience with trial and error treatments to get me pregnant. But after a couple of years, I did finally get pregnant, and we were really, really excited for a very short period of time. And then we learned I would miscarry this baby that we had hoped and prayed for and worked so hard for. We were devastated. I was really sad. I felt let down by God, honestly. But God, well, we kept going because one miscarriage isn't actually all that uncommon for women. And we still really wanted a baby. And we knew that God was a faithful God. I had just spent the last four years on this big cross-country journey teaching me quite a lot about faith. And I would need all of that faith in those years to come. At this point, we were praying for a baby. However, God might provide one. We prayed we asked people everywhere we went to pray. We asked a nice lady that owned a sheep farm in Ireland to pray for us. We prayed at all the churches mentioned in um, the book Angels and Demons in Rome. Uh, we prayed everywhere. Um, we just wanted a baby, but Mark kept assuring me that stealing one was not God's answer. <laughs> After another year went by, I got pregnant again, and we were excited, a little more cautious, but pretty excited because we weren't even doing infertility treatments at that time, so surely this would be the one. Until I woke up bleeding on the 4th of July. It was a quiet ride to the hospital where, thankfully, my parents met us for the day, and we learned that I was miscarrying again. Two weeks later, my grandfather died. Two weeks after that, I found out that my current work contract that was supporting our family and paying for Mark to go to school would be cut to a third of its size. I was diagnosed with depression at that time, but a large part of my feeling was just anger. I was just flat mad at God. Um, I was mostly just mad because as I asked why over and over and over again, I felt that all I heard was silence. But it was conflicting because I also still had this faith in God that said God is good and God is faithful to us. So one day I came up with this kind of unusual image, the image of a child sitting in her father's lap, just screaming and beating against his chest with her fist because she was so, so mad and her father's arms were wrapped tightly around her. That child was so mad at her father that she wanted to hit him. 
But she knew that her father loved her so very much that she knew that the safest and best place to be was in her father's arms. That was the day I started to realize that God created all of the emotions, and God meets us in all of our emotions. We don't have to have only the good emotions with God. We can share all of our emotions with God, and he can take it. Well, it was after that miscarriage and a lot of testing that we learned I had a chromosome mix-up that causes repeat miscarriages. And we had to grieve all over again and struggle again with God. I had wanted babies since I was a little girl. It was a good desire. It was a biblical desire. And yet, in my mind, God wasn't answering. But we'd asked him to lead our journey, and we just wanted a baby, however God would provide one. And at this point, our journey started taking us towards adoption. In adoption, God gave us a very unusual charge to adopt a child of a specific race and gender. This is unusual because in the U.S. private adoption system, you are told to be as open as possible to race and gender to be, have more birth mothers see your parent profile. I was frustrated that God seemed to be saying, telling us otherwise. But God met me in my frustration and said, Be still and know that I am God. Over and over, I heard that in my head, even as it made no sense to restrict to our profile. Well, we were approved to adopt on November 22nd, and Isaac was born on February 22nd. With all those restrictions, we still have about the fastest adoption of anyone we know. God asked us to be faithful, and was he ever faithful in return? We finally had our baby, the perfect baby for us. One more confirmation of that, the miscarriage that I'd had the year before on the 4th of July, my due date was February 22nd, the very day that Isaac was born. There are lots of emotions in adoption, and God has met me in those, in those emotions too. And I pray that Isaac's birth mother today knows that God is with her as well. I think my favorite quote to sum up the, the emotions surrounding adoption is this. A child born to another woman calls me mommy. The magnitude of that tragedy and the depth of that privilege is not lost on me. Even five years later, I'm overwhelmed with emotions as I watch Isaac play at times. It's all I can do to cry out to God for his amazing goodness in adoption. As a side note on adoption, adoptive parents get a very unique opportunity to understand the adoption of each of us by God in a way that I truly believe can only be comprehended through adoption. Um, on, the t on the day that you're told by a judge that this child is now and forever yours. Talk about a day filled with emotion. But the journey didn't end there. I would go on to get pregnant again and miscarry again. It was a little different because I had a baby to love and snuggle as I cried, but I was still sad and God still sat with me as I cried because I wanted this baby too. At this point in our story, we took a little turn. Mark was finishing his engineering degree and looking for a job. He told me about one in Oklahoma City, and I said, sure, go for it. You don't have to take it, even if they offer it to you. It'll be good practice, but it's not like we're just going to move from Florida to Oklahoma. And I'm pretty sure God laughed when I said that. Mark ended up with two job offers. One in Oklahoma City and one in Wichita, Kansas. 
Well, there's nothing that makes Oklahoma City seem quite so appealing as being told your other option is to move to Wichita. <laughs> so, but we decided to test God anyway because we really wanted to make sure this Oklahoma thing was from him. So Mark asked for a signing bonus to help pay for our move, and we were told they would probably say no, but they said yes. <laughs> okay, God, thanks for the confirmation, I think. And two months later, Mark finished school, and we were moving to Oklahoma. And Mark would be in working for the Boeing company. It was hard to leave my parents and take their only grandchild that they had also hoped and prayed for and move halfway back across the country. But again, God had asked us to trust and be faithful, and his plan would be very good. When Isaac was a year old, I got pregnant yet again for the fourth time in four years. But this time would be different. We prayed and hoped just as much as every other time. We had our brand new small group in Oklahoma literally surround us standing in a circle praying for this baby, that this growing baby would be healthy. And this time, God said yes. And we would see a flickering heartbeat on an ultrasound for the first time. And months later, we would bring home our son, Joel. After Joel was born, I miscarried three more times. Each time brought a time of mourning, of questioning, of thinking we must be crazy for continuing to try and work for more children when we already had these two beautiful boys. And a lot of sadness because now these babies had faces. We had Joel. We knew what our babies would look like. And I was heartbroken even as I continued to care for my sons. But God kept meeting me in those emotions and was still whispering on my heart, I am not done with you. I am not done giving you children. Watch, and I will be faithful. The fourth time I got pregnant after Joel was born, I wasn't excited, not even a little bit. I mostly ignored the fact, actually. I was tired of this, and I told God that a lot. I'm just flat tired of this cycle of miscarrying, God. And God replied with, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you, and all you have to do is hold on. I know you're tired, but I will carry you. We went to the doctor again, and finally we were seeing another flickering heartbeat, and Peter would be joining our family but not in Oklahoma. See, we really didn't like Oklahoma all that much for a pretty good reason. Tornadoes are terrible weather events. And we just happened to move to more Oklahoma five months before it could be ravaged by an F5 tornado that we were able to see from our front window. We had no idea as we walked into our storm shelter that day if our home would be standing when we came back out. It was, but I think that was the day we started praying to God that we, he would help us move from Oklahoma. Later that year, Mark was asked to start working for a team that was based in Seattle, and our prospects of moving seemed a little bit higher. Another year and a half later, we were still praying we could move to Seattle, and, but our prayers were getting really intense because by this time we had now been chased by a tornado in our car, and another time, a tornado came within two blocks of our house, lifted back up off the ground, went over our house, and hit the ground again and kept going. Um, God was definitely taking care of us, but we weren't really liking this way of living. We were finally granted the opportunity to move to Seattle when I was pregnant with Peter. Since my parents moved here the year before, this was an amazing chance for our boys to get to grow up by their grandparents and get extra help now that we had this third child. 
on the way, and Peter was born four months after we moved here. Peter. God has a really special plan for Peter that we have learned over the last year. Uh, I know he does because God made Peter extra special. When Peter was a month old, we realized his eyes moved back and forth all the time, but he couldn't actually look at anyone or anything. Over the next few months, our hearts grew heavy as it became more and more evident that Peter couldn't see. He could see very, very little. Um, at his six-month well-baby checkup, he failed every single one of his developmental milestones. We already had an appointment with a pediatric ophthalmologist and found out that his eyes were not only very weak, but the rapid eye movement, called a nystagmus, could very well indicate a neurological defect. We were asked to take him for an MRI. I cried as I watched him get put to sleep. I cried all the way through the testing. I cried out to God that I just wanted my baby to be fine. God heard all those prayers. I know God heard all those prayers, but I didn't get the answer I wanted. Peter has a rare brain defect called optic nerve hypoplasia. That means not only is his optic nerve bundle very small, but it impacts uh, under other parts of his brain are underdeveloped as well. This condition occurs in utero and is not repairable. It's a whole different kind of sadness and heartbreak that comes when you learn your child will potentially face a lifetime of difficulties and you can't even fix it for him. I had to struggle again to remember the goodness of God, the God who made Peter. The God who made Peter could have made Peter whole, but he chose not to. I have to trust that God has a great plan for Peter, even though that's a journey I haven't seen yet. In the meantime, I've been reminded that even on the days I'm tired of going to one more appointment at the children's hospital, that I'm tired of having therapists in our home three days a week, that I'm tired of making sure Peter doesn't hurt himself because he can't see very well and he has no depth perception, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mark said this next part of the story, though, is where God just shows off, and I have to agree with him. When Peter was eight months old, I got pregnant again. And this time, we didn't continue this trend of miscarrying between babies. God, in his infinite mercies, allowed this pregnancy to be our daughter Eloise. We finally have those four children we wanted so long ago. Not at all the journey I would have planned, not by a long shot, not the journey I expected, not even close. But it was the journey that I would grow the most. I've been asked more than once how I endured all those losses of babies and I often just say, by God's grace, I don't have any other answer because there's no part of my human strength that could have done it. I believe it was also the grace of God that allowed me to have Eloise without having a miscarriage first. I can stand here today and say that God has me on a journey of healing and God is still very, very good. I just want to give you all a challenge today to let God to me. Let God meet you in your emotions. Whatever journey you are on, whatever you are feeling, let God meet you there. I want to especially talk to women for a minute. There's a lot of pressure on women. In the world, it's to be Pinterest-worthy. In the church, it's to be the Proverbs 31 woman. Well, the Bible doesn't say this, but since she was female, I'm going to theorize that the Proverbs 31 woman broke down and cried more than once. 
Yet, she's still in the Bible. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to just feel the feelings that God gives you. But know this, God can take it. God can take all of those emotions, whatever they are. Invite him to meet you in your emotions, and you'll find out that God is already there waiting. And for anyone among us that's still waiting for their baby, I'll be praying for you. I am super impressed that you chose to come to church on Mother's Day. You are really, really brave. You are showing faithfulness to God. I don't know how your journey will go. I can't promise you a baby as much as I would desperately like to. But I can promise that God is here. God is listening. God wants the very, very best for you. And God is good all the time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just allowing me to share my story this morning. For giving me the time to figure out how to pull it together. And, and for bringing everyone here today to, to listen. I hope that this story writes on their heart this morning the goodness of your grace, the goodness of your sufficiency, and the goodness of your journeys through our lives. Lord, we just, I lift up the moms here today that they would just feel your loving presence, the women here, and just everyone that's here uh, would know that you are here and you are holding them and that you love them. In your name, amen. I'm, I'm very grateful for, for April to share. I, it's, I think it's very hard for a male pastor to come up and, and, and share on Mother's Day because I know that there are so many emotions that, that mothers have and continue to go through that uh, as hard as I would try or as hard as your husbands would try to empathize in, um, we're still... We're still trying, and, and, and sometimes it feels like we land short. So I, 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 what I want to do is I, I want to put some Bible under, under what April said, and she already did a great job of that, looking at Hebrews 11.1. 1. And I want to take another passage, and, and very quickly, and I just want to do, do this. I want to read this story that occurs in 1 Samuel. And then I want to make two very short observations. One of the observations I think is needed for us husbands, us men. And then the other observation is aimed towards um, future moms, current moms, moms who are tired of being moms, um, grandmothers, and and. And that's aimed for you, but, but husbands, we, we probably need it too also. Men, we need it too. So let me read this passage. It's in 1 Samuel. I'm going to start in verse 4 for the sake of time. It says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penea, or Penea. You don't know how to pronounce it, nor do I. His wife. And to all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her 
womb. So here's something we have to kind of, we don't have time to go into, and the culture here is different than ours. Here, here this gentleman, he has two wives, which we know certainly from Genesis 1 and 2, that's not the design of God. Um, we'll just kind of leave it at that. But what had happened is one of the wives had many sons and, and many, uh, many daughters, and then the other wife had none. And so the husband, and, and it seems in an effort to empathize and encourage and be a blessing to this wife, Hannah, he, he would give her more um, when it came to when they would go and worship together he, uh, and, and give his other wife a little bit less, um, which is probably another sermon in itself. There's a lot of things wrong in this text that we don't have time to get into. We will focus on what's right. Um, it says this, and her rival, that's Hannah, Hannah's rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. I can't get into that because I got such short time, but notice it says the Lord closed her womb. And I loved that April had the courage and the boldness to call upon the sovereignty of God and go, you know what? God is not out of control. God could have saved those seven miscarriages. Could have. But he chose not to. This is not a statement of God being out of control. This is a statement of God being in absolute control. God says, I'm in this. And it says, so it went on year by year. We get a sense from how many kids this other wife had that I think it's easy to guess a decade, maybe more. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, that's Hannah, used to, or excuse me, this is Paniah, um, or however we're calling her name, um, provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, now, okay, this is where we're going to make the observation for us husbands. We're going to notice this husband does something that I would not recommend. And frankly, when I say this, husbands are going to go, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't do what he did. I know. I get that. And, and I'm sure you don't need to hear this. I'm sure for certain you've mastered this and you are not like this guy named Elkanah at all. But it's in the Bible and we might as well say it since it's there. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now here's his line. Uh-oh. Am I not more to you than ten sons? In other words, Hannah, I know that your heart is breaking. I know that what you want more than anything from is, is kids. But I got the solution for you here, sweetie. Here it is. It's me. You got me. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad that we can laugh about this. Um, Melissa and I, we're doing premarital counseling for, for a couple we, we dearly love. And this week was uh, overcoming, resolving conflict. And so we took a recent conflict they had. Luckily, it was a very small, little one um, that involved him uh, driving. And they were getting happy hour. And, of course, it was going to just be drinks. But she was hungry. And she said, maybe we would get some food. And, and he said, since when is happy hour about getting food? Um, yeah, wrong. Se- and I'm like, Melissa and I are looking at each other like, that's all it means, yo. I want half-price appetizers. 
Well, that didn't go well. And what came up uh, from this story and other little small resolving conflict stories is, is that he would say, I'm sorry for hurting your feelings. And she would jump back and go, well, well, can you define exactly what you're sorry about? I know that you said hurting my feelings, but can you unpack that a little bit more? And really what she wanted was, I want you to understand what you did. I want you to enter in to my feelings and why they were hurt and how they were hurt. And, and husbands, again, I know that you are batting a thousand on this and you don't need to hear this or anything at all. But, um, but I think one of the greatest things, one of the most effective things we can do as husbands, as fathers, as supporters of our wives is to try our best to enter in to the hardships that come with being a wife, with, with being a mother. And, and, and by doing this, husbands, we are living the gospel, might I add. Maybe the most significant passage when it comes to husbands in the Bible is in um, Ephesians 5, 25, where it says, Husbands, love your wife as, here's the picture, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the picture is this, that Jesus, in his overwhelming love for us, didn't just say, I forgive you of your sins, but he entered in to the disaster of humanity, the sin of humanity, entered into our pain in our struggle and then died for us and, and husbands I, I think that's I think that should be commended to us that we would seek to enter into understanding the hardships that come with being a mom a stay at home mom a working mom one who desires to be a mom and enter into that by simply maybe asking what can I do to help how can I serve you so husbands, I'm, again, you didn't need that, but it's in the text. Now let's look at Hannah and, and something for, for moms here. It said, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Listen to this. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. For the sake of time, if you jump down to verse 15, it says, Hannah had answered, No, my Lord, I, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have not drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out the great anxiety and vexation. What I want us to see here is, is exactly what April said, is that as, as, as a, an aspiring mother who's having trouble being pregnant, as, as a mother with, with a one-year-old that you just keep on waking up in the middle of the night like two or three times, or, or a two-year-old or a three-year-old that just keeps on disobeying and does the tantrum things, or the, or the five-year-old that's like, okay, you're still disobeying me over and over again, or the 13-year-old that you're like, okay, you're not 19, seriously, or the 18-year-old that's breaking your heart and not walking with Jesus, or the 30-year-old that's never around, that, that there are some heavy emotions that go with that. I said um, 
We were at a staff meeting about a week and a half ago. And our latest staff member, many of you know, Brooke Kahn, has come on staff here at the mission as our director of operations. And we're talking about Mother's Day sermon and, and the service. And, and I said to her, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm realizing this now that with April's story, this is like going to be a, this is like really heavy. It's like a really heavy Sunday, and I always thought like Mother's Day, well, happy, yay, um, let's do, let's sprinkle flowers, and, and let's do all, you know, it's supposed to be happy and yay, and it feels really, really heavy, and I was getting nervous, and Brooke looks at me and goes, well, Zach, you need to understand it's, it's actually really heavy to be a mom, and it was heavy for Hannah before she was even a mom. It is heavy to be a mom. I'm sure I don't understand the least of it. And it's okay for you to be overwhelmed. It's okay to, to be at a place where you're frustrated, where you're weeping, where you're tired. But moms, may, may we follow suit with Hannah. What did she do? Says she prayed. Says she she prayed. I love the picture that April gave us, this picture of sitting on her dad's lap and, and, and being angry with dad and maybe, you know, throwing punches at dad that just, you know, feel like a, a massage on your chest of sorts. And the dad just holding, holding close. And, it, and it's this picture that this relationship that we have with our heavenly father, that that we can sit on his lap and that we can be frustrated and disappointed. God, why, God, this is difficult. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm tired. But I love what April said. It, it was the safest place for her to be, knowing I can show my frustration with God and know that his response is going to be to squeeze me tighter and say, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I love that Hannah prays. One of the things I wanted to do, but we didn't have time to do, is I wanted to look at passage after passage, story after story in the Bible, where you see a mom that's overwhelmed, that's undone, that's tired, that's beyond herself. And what does she do? She seeks God. I'm trying to think of the stories in which a father goes to God on behalf of his child in prayer. And I've got one. Maybe there's two. I can only think of David. But the stories of moms getting on their knees before God, there's many of them. This is not a discouragement for, for men and God not hearing your prayers, but rather this is probably an encouragement for us men to, to pray like some mamas pray. And a greater encouragement for you moms, I, I don't want to say that this is at the very, very top of the list. There are so many effective things and, and significant things that you do as a mom. The, the, the answer that I have to that question I asked, what, what, is your, what are the things that you love most about your mom or your favorite thing about your mom or you're most thankful about your mom? I would say this. She has not stopped praying for me for 30 years. She just, she just won't stop praying for me. She'll text me. She's on my heart. She's like, what's wrong? God, God put something on my heart. And I'm praying for you. 
And moms, I think maybe the most important thing that you can do, the most effective thing you can do for your child is get on your knees and say, God, I'm begging you, please bring my child to salvation. God, I'm begging you. I am out of patience. And you say your Holy Spirit is in me and I need to walk in the Spirit because I I can't take these two kids anymore. I'm overwhelmed by these three kids or whatever it might be. That we would be a church of moms that beg and plead on behalf of our kids. And husbands, that we would do the same. We would pray and we pray and we pray. And, And much of that is April's story. Much of that is, is Jen's story. Jen, Jennifer shared a few weeks ago of her story. Just a mama was praying for her. And so, moms, may we look to Hannah to be people of prayer. May we look to Hannah and be reminded that it's okay to be overwhelmed and go, God, where are you? Because if you keep reading, God does show up in a great, miraculous way. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for April's story. Thank you for her faithfulness to you. Her faithfulness and trusting in you. Father, thank you for the story of Hannah. A reminder that you are in control even when things are not going our way, a reminder of the power of getting on our knees for our kids. May we be a church of moms that are praying for their kiddos. Empower moms. I know that they can be tired and overwhelmed. Would you empower them with the Holy Spirit you have put in them? Pray all these things in your gracious name. Amen.